Welcome to the Toxic Google Podcasts, where great minds meet. I'm Lauren, bringing you this episode. Toxic Google brings the world's most influential thinkers, creators, makers, and doers all to one place. Every episode is taken from a video that can be seen at youtube.com slash talks at Google. Pot, weed, grass. We all think we know cannabis, but do we? Somewhere between the illicit joints and pot brownies, the conversation stopped. And only now is it retaking the center stage as more states pass legislation to legalize. In Brave New Weed, Adventures into the Uncharted World of Cannabis, author Joe Dolce travels to the new frontier of cannabis, shedding light on everything you didn't know about weed and didn't even think to ask. Through dispatches from Amsterdam, Israel, Colorado, and more, Dolce endeavors to tear down the walls of the cannabis closet and find answers to questions. From detailing trials where murderers claimed insanity due to marijuana consumption to uncovering success stories about the plant's impressive medicinal compounds, Dolce paints a fresh portrait of our attitudes towards cannabis and reveals the power of weed. Here is Joe Dolce, Brave New Weed, Adventures into the Uncharted World of Cannabis. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, you know, I spent about four years reporting and working on this book, and, I, and people always say, what is the one thing you learn from it? And I have to say, the one thought that really comes to mind is that weed is about so much more than getting high. It's about uh, criminal justice, it's about health, it's about wellness, it's about fairness. Um, it's just about a, a range of things that it's touched over our lifetimes. So I want to talk to you a little bit about how I began this and, and, and what I did to report this book, Brave New Weed. Um, it really it started with a puff. My, uh, my cousin is, was growing something called Super Lemon Haze. And I hadn't really indulged in anything for about 15 years. Um, at a certain point in my life, weed became too powerful uh, made me too unhappy, actually. It made me paranoid and just uncomfortable. So I stopped. It, by the way, it's very easy to stop. Anyway, he gave me a uh, little super lemon haze, and I had a few puffs on it. And it was sort of like my mind was on jazz. Things started feeling and looking a little different and in a nice way, ticking along very happily. And he then brought me into his man cave and showed me some incredible macro pictures of the plant, these close-up pictures of the oils and the bracts and the colors, and it looks like underwater sea life. It was just a, a beautiful thing. And then he started explaining the difference between sativa and indica, and I was unaware of most of this information. And I figured if he could figure this out, living in rural New England, um, the, the whole new world had opened. So I decided to start exploring it, and I quickly realized that the myth and the fact of weed are very muddled in our lives. Um, it took me a long time to distinguish the two. And I'll give you a few examples. Um, myth. Weed kills brain cells. Is that true, or does it increase perception? And if the two are both true, how is that possible? Um, myth. Uh, weed increases chances of getting lung cancer. At the same time, certain studies have shown that it actually, it actually expands the capacity of the lungs, and the ancients used to use it for uh, asthma. Another great myth. Um, weed causes men to grow, to grow breasts and reduces our sperm counts. 
I can tell you where that came from later. Um, anyway, so I, uh, the more I looked into it, I, I, I started moving around the country, um, exploring it. And I had some very, un I had very good experiences, and I also had a few very uncomfortable experiences, one of which happened in Denver. Um, I, I ended up in a, uh, the inner sanctum of a bunch of growers and oil makers um, in Denver. This is around 2014, just before recreational sales were about to be legal. I didn't really know from concentrates and shatters and dabs, these new sort of concoctions that people were making out of the weed. Does anybody here not know what a dab is? Okay, so good. I wasn't alone. <laughs> um, it is a, it's a concentrate. They, they basically take the plant matter and separate it from the oil. So what you've got is a very concentrated bit of oil. If the, the strongest flower is 30% THC, a dab is about 70 to 80% THC. It's a very strong thing. And typically, you, you take um, a quinoa seed size, and you put it on a hot nail, and you inhale it, and, and that's your experience. Well, I was, I was with these guys for about a week, and it was a really fascinating experience because they were taking me to edible makers and oil makers and showing me how all these new products were being refined and used. And the problem they were having in Denver at the time was that there wasn't enough oil. No one had enough product to make all the things they wanted to make. So D, it occurs to me that I'm sort of sitting in the middle of a boom waiting to happen, and the guys I'm watching are sort of the Steve Jobs and the Steve Wozniak of the weed world. They're doing these things. They don't care about the law. They don't care about money. They're doing this because they really want to be doing this. So at the end of these four or five days, they say to me, um, want to try a dab? And I had, you know, I'd been around a lot of secondhand smoke during that period. Um, and I said, sure, why not? And, and they gave me a dab. And, and you're laughing at me. They, <laughs> they gave me a dab that was the size of a sesame seed, not a quinoa seed. So maybe three times as big. I was a little unaware of it at the time. Anyway, I, I tried it. And um, it was fine. And we, it was nice. And we went out to dinner. And I'm in the restaurant. And I'm trying to read the menu, and the words are really little, dancing off the page. I, I couldn't bring the menu into focus. And then the floor of the restaurant starts feeling like this, like a boat in crashing waves. And I know this is not going to end well. Now, the last time I felt like this, I was in my 20s. And um, I'd been seeing an older woman at the time. And I was about to tell her that I thought I was gay. And before I had that opportunity, we had smoked something from Hawaii that she had. And um, she told me she was pregnant with my child. And I ended up, I was in the bathroom vomiting. Um, and I thought this was an emotional response to too much bad news at one moment. Um, but that night in Denver, I realized that was not the case at all. And I had to leave the restaurant. And I went outside. And it was, it was very uncomfortable and very messy. And, you know, I, I puked for about a half hour on the street. And I was humiliated. I, I felt terrible about this. And I got home and had a, a, a very uncomfortable evening, trying to get to sleep, and woke up the next day and what the hell happened? Uh, weed is supposed to be anti-nausea. And here I had this violent response. And I started looking. I started Googling. And really, there was more myth and many, many, many different suppositions as to what happened. I couldn't find the answer. So, my next port of call was to Israel, because Israel has been the capital of cannabis research since 1964. Um, 
and why, of course, why. In the 1960s, the US government scheduled cannabis as a Schedule I drug, classified as a Schedule I drug, which means it has no medical benefit and is highly addictive. The main problem with that, however, besides all sorts of people going to jail for possession, is that it has, it has really tied research up in red tape. And it's been almost impossible for American researchers to look at anything about the positive or healing or, or biochemical aspects of what's happening with this plant. Most of the research in America is done through the National Institutes of Drug Abuse, which is to find out the abuse problems that weed cause. And they're quite responsible for the idea of man boobs and low sperm counts. Um, so I get to Israel, and I get to the labs of a man named Dr. Raphael Meshulam, who in 1964 discovered what made weed psychoactive. There's two components, the majority of, uh, majority, one is THC, which is responsible for the high, and the other is something called CBD, which is largely responsible for the healing. It's highly anti-inflammatory. And he has been looking at this and experimenting and exploring this world really for the last 50 years. By the way, the average age of his scientists is about 73. And most of them have never seen or touched the plant. They're used to dealing with chemicals in bottles. It's a very fascinating experience. Um, and what happened was really interesting. In the 1980s, they discovered a, a system of receptors throughout the body that cannabinoids respond to. Um, however, we, we don't have receptors in our body to respond to substances in plants. It just doesn't make any sense. We, we don't, that's not what, what our bodies do. So they began looking for the, the chemicals in the brain that trigger these receptors. And in fact, they found them. They found two main chemicals. And they named them, nice names. They named one anandamide, after the Hindu name Ananda, which means bliss. And that is what THC mimics. And they named the other one, much less poetically, 2-AG, which is what CBD mimics. Um, and then they discovered what these chemicals do. And the endocannabinoid system, which is like a, it's, it's hard to imagine receptor systems. Uh, we don't feel them, we don't really think about them in our bodies. This system regulates homeostasis. It keeps the body in balance. And there's another system of receptors that you might be more familiar with that are called endorphins. And a, it's a very good metaphor because endorphins produce, there's you know, dopamine, serotonin, these sort of chemicals. But there's another plant that mimics the endorphins that our bodies produce, and it's called opium. And here's the big difference between opium and cannabis. In opium, there are receptors in the part of the brain cells that control the heart and the lungs, which means when you take too much opium, the brain starts freaking out, and it shuts down those centers, and then you die. Cannabis, there are no cannabinoid receptors in that part of the brainstem. So nothing with the heart, nothing with the lungs, which is why, in fact, no one has ever died from an overdose of cannabis, ever, in the history of recorded time. Very fascinating, I think. Um, so they eventually learned that this homeostasis uh, that keeps the body in balance is responsible for five main functions. And anyone who's ever used cannabis will know some of them. Sleep, rest, hunger, protecting the external organs, and forgetting. So forgetting is really fascinating because it helps us make sense of our world. If we were to absorb the amount of sensory data coming at us 
just even on the subway, we would go crazy. Cannabis really helps us edit, forget. And protecting as well, if you break your arm, you know, the body sends all sorts of chemicals, blood, lymphocytes, white blood cells, to protect that area. What's happening is the, receptor, the cannabinoid receptors here are signaling to the brain. It's like the emergency broadcast system. We're in trouble. Help us out. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I spent, again, I spent about a week talking to the scientists in Mishulam's lab. And they're doing amazing research, uh, one of which is uh, one researcher was studying the effects of cannabinoids on bone healing. They found that, in fact, they make bones heal more quickly. Another one is doing research on CBD and type 2 diabetes, which is an enormous scourge around the world. Um, another one, very interestingly, has been doing research on CBD and traumatic brain injury. And this is a huge issue right now in the world, especially in America, in the world of sports. All the football players that are complaining about their brains being turned to mush because they have so many concussions. They've actually found that if you administer cannabinoids within four hours of injury, it really stops the, the responses that, that really damage the brain. And of course, this information is, is not widely disseminated, it's, it, and it's never been in clinical trial. No pharmaceutical company is going to take it up as long as cannabis is an illegal substance. Just, it's not going to work. So things are quite hamstrung. So, but before I left, I said to Mishulam, hey, why did I have that terrible response? And he said to me, well, it's two reasons. Possibly dose, like you took too much. Yes. Or there was something in the plant matter itself. It could have been a mold or a pesticide or some sort of fungus that we just don't know about because we, we aren't able to sort of test these things. And then I said to him, so what's the big picture here, doctor? Why do we have this system that, that helps us do these things? And then he revealed to me a very interesting theory. He thinks that um, because there are, there, he has found over 200 or 300 uh, chemicals like anandamide and 2-AG that the brain is producing. And all of our DNAs uh, mean that they're emitted in different ratios. And he actually believes, or thinks, it's a theory, that this may be responsible for our emotional centers and why we're all different emotional beings. Because he said to me, look, I, why are we angry? Why are we sad? Why are we jealous? I don't know. I don't know the chemical reason for that. And I certainly had no idea of why those things are true. Um, and it was extremely fascinating to think about. But cannabis is more than that, even. And if you look at um, what's happening in America right now, it, it's, it's really interesting. Um, we're on the precipice of some very interesting changes. Um, I looked at what's happening economically in some of the free states. And I looked at Colorado first. Um, by the way, Colorado, I, look, I looked at the regulations of cannabis versus guns in Colorado. Cannabis, there are 228,000 wor 228, words in the regulations. And the gun regulations in Colorado are about 18,500 words. So it's a difference of about 210,000 words. That's how regulated this substance is in Colorado. And they're doing a great job, by the way. But look at the economics for a second. Colorado last year sold $1 billion. They made $1 billion in revenue of medical and recreational cannabis. That yielded $135 million in taxes, which was $35 million more than they had anticipated. It created 27,000 jobs. Arthur Fromer, who is the granddaddy of the travel business, he's now also in his 80s, said two weeks ago that the next great boom in tourism 
is cannabis tourism. He was not prompted to say that. He just ended up divining that idea. So I think what's happening in Colorado is going to spread, obviously, as more states legalize. The big thing that's going to happen is in California, however. They're voting on Proposition 64 this election in November. And if California legalizes, which it's now looking at about 60% likely um, in favor of legalizing, big changes are going to happen. Uh, first of all, the state has 40 million people, which is over twice as many as all the other states combined that have legal cannabis. It is the world's sixth largest economy, the world's sixth largest economy. And they grow more cannabis in California than all of North America combined already, already. Um, they're guesstimating the first year revenue at 30, between 30 to $36 billion, and, yeah, and the first year tax haul at $2 billion, okay? So it, it, I think it will begin a sea change. And then when you think of the map of the United States, you have California, Oregon, Washington, and in 2017, Canada's about to legalize federally across the country. That's an entire L-shaped block around North America. Things are going to change. I, I just, you can't build a wall to stop this at this point, okay? You cannot do it. Um, but yet, and then it goes beyond that. It, it, it goes into culture. When you're in places like California that, that have had medical cannabis for a long time, I mean, you go to cocktail parties and there, there are people my age and older in their 60s or, or 70s even talking about different strains or how to, how to construct a hide for their healing or, or construct a program that actually enables them to feel better. So somebody said to me, oh, you know, they were, they were arguing about tangerine dream versus blue dream. And, and they were saying, you know, but I have found that if I use a 2.5 milligram edible with three hits of a vaporizer of whatever strain it was, I can really help my pain. I forgot my show and tell products. I'll show you some more things later, okay? I want to show you some of the products that are being produced in some of these states, because here in New York, we just don't have any idea. So I think legalization leads to smarter products and smarter users. Um, there's also one other thought I have about this that I think is, is is apt, and it is that we are at a time of incredible societal change right now. We all know this, and you guys are partly responsible for it, obviously, here at Google. Um, but you know, we live in 24-hour news cycles. We have more information coming at us than ever before. I think the estimate is five times as much information today that we're absorbing compared to uh, 1986. And we live in a, a screen-based world, which is, can sometimes be more lonely. Um, and I think it's, a, it's sort of remarkable that we have this plant that can address sort of all of these maladies, time, crunch, stress, um, you know, the loneliness of a world where we're not talking to each other and feeling each other. And in fact, one of the researchers I was speaking to while reporting Brave New World said to me, you know, I don't think that the Garden of Eden was an apple tree that Eve sampled. She said, I think it was a cannabis bush. And I said, oh yeah, why is that? She said, well, think about it. You get thrown out of Eden, it's rough out there. You know, you suddenly have to, you gotta deal with the environment, you've gotta deal with animals, you've gotta deal with getting your food, you've gotta get to with procreation, you have to keep the whole society going, and there's only two of you, and there's no more Eden. She said, I think cannabis was that plant. And I think it's quite interesting to think about how it might be used for us today. I'd like to leave you with that thought. Thank you. Thank you so much, Joe. Uh, so.
I get the, the honor to, to follow up and ask you some questions. Um, and I'm sure all of you guys are waiting for this, the, the show and tell afterwards. <laughs> um, so thank you for sharing a little bit of insight into your book and your experiences and resource, research that support um, the stories you do tell in Brave New Weed. Um, let's talk about the title. Um, what inspired you to kind of you know, come up with this title, and what did you want readers to, to do? What action did you want readers to take after reading it? Buy the book. That was the first action I wanted okay. them to take. I wanted them to rethink um, what we think about weed, actually. And I think a lot of the researchers and uh, people who've been working hard towards legalization or trying to reframe what this plant is are quite brave. Many of them have, have suffered. Um, one of them is a, a man who is now in his 80s named Lester Grinspoon. He was a Harvard psychologist, and he wrote the first book about reconsidering marijuana. It's actually called Marijuana Reconsidered. It came out in 1972. He was never given tenure at Harvard. He was a brilliant psychiatrist and a, a, you know, a colleague of, of Stephen Jay Gould and Carl Sagan, right up there, one of the golden boys. Um, he suffered. You know, I, I think Mishulam and his laboratory, I mean, they're highly decorated scientists, but their work has never been recognized by the wide body of science at this point. It will be at some point, but not currently. And so in, in your book, you do talk about the terminology of, I think you called it brave new words, and where you're <laughs> seeing um, a shift from older words to more newer words that might resonate more with the medical field. Um, I think you mentioned Amsterdam, how it's synonymous to Denver now. You talked about how dealers are now considered dispensaries. Um, can you talk about that shift that, or the trend that you think we're, we're kind of seeing um, around cannabis and weed in general? Yeah, it's called normalization. It's called taking something that has been vilified and made illegal and stigmatized and mythologized to a large extent and trying to look at the data, trying to look at the science around it. You know, even though it's been um, very difficult to do science in the United States, there have been over 10,000 studies done on the chemistry, the biochemistry, the effects on cancer, the effects on pain, you know, so many different injuries, PTSD, um, that really show potential, real potential. Um, again, once this information is, is more widely dispersed, I think, I think it's impossible not to rethink what this plant is. It was one of the great revelations to me. I mean, I was so surprised at how hoodwinked I had been. I mean, even though I didn't think it was bad for me, I never thought it could possibly be considered a wellness product, that people could actually use it to feel better. And believe me, having been now to California, Washington, Colorado, all these places, um, I know that's what people are doing. And so that brings up um, an interesting point. As we were talking about this talk earlier, um, there's been this, uh, this idea of, I guess, a generation gap. I'm not sure what, it, what to call it. But in the 70s, 80s, 90s, weed, or the plant of cannabis, was perce perceived differently. And now our generation might have, um, have a new sentiment about it due to the branding or what corp corporations are now, how they're branding cannabis. Um, what do you think we could be doing as a society to kind of to make this movement more powerful, or, or wh how can we drive it? Uh, vote. I mean, if you live in any of the states where there's a ballot initiative, especially if you're in California, be sure you're registered and go vote for Proposition 64. Um, I think read about it. I mean, you don't have to read my book. You can read many other books and read the experience of, of people who've been exploring it medically. Um, in all sorts of different ways. Um, I, I, 
it's, it's impossible to really look at it and keep thinking of it as this dangerous, mm -hmm. dangerous killer substance. I, look, I think, like, just like alcohol, I think 10% of the people are going to overuse any substance. Um, but it doesn't, even if you compare it to alcohol, it doesn't have the same ramifications. There's no, you know, no disintegration of the organs. It's not tied to violent crime. It's not tied to, to rape and all sorts of other terrible maladies that mm -hmm. alcohol is tied to. Um, and I, 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 listen, I drink also. I don't, I don't think we should be banning any substance, frankly. Um, I think we have to start looking at it, though, as something that adults can use and they can okay. use mindfully. And so I guess that was going to be my next question because I think that's something that always comes up. Can you mix weed with alcohol? Or is there a right combination of uh, CD, uh, CDD, CD? CBD. C CBD. I'm fumbling with my letters right now. CBD and a THC. Like, what is that right ratio? What's going to give you the, the ultimate healing benefit? It's a very good question. And I, I don't think we quite know, but I can tell you this. Um, in the plant in the 1970s, nobody here is old enough to remember, there was an equal balance of CBD to THC. It was a one-to-one -one ratio. And what happened... Really, Ronald Reagan is responsible for the power of pot today. Mm -hmm. Because when he turned the war on drugs nuclear in the 1980s, a lot of those growers did one of two things. They either they went to Amsterdam mm -hmm. to continue plying their craft, or they moved indoors in California. Or they hid the bushes under trees. And they had to change. They had to do selective breeding. They had to grow plants that were more powerful mm -hmm. and shorter. And in the process of doing this, they would get this plant that had CBD in it, and it wasn't very strong. CBD and, and THC are like an old married couple. They, they fight a lot, okay? But they also get along quite well, and they're mod they modulate each other. Um, when they started breeding for THC alone, they made pot really strong, and they took away that life jacket of CBD, right? So now they're start we're starting to reintegrate CBD back into the plant. Um, and I, I find that a very uh, comforting thought because it's a, it's, a, it's a gentler plant. We will have standards at a certain point. Someone will figure out how to make standards of, of cannabinoids just as they have with alcohol. So we know, we don't do any math. We know a shot is equal to a six ounce glass of wine is equal to a 12 ounce bottle of beer, right? We know this intuitively at this point. You can monitor, you can be an adult about your usage, you know when to stop. That's one of the problems with the illegal state of cannabis is there's, we don't have these methods, we don't know dosage. We, we, only in certain states is testing even available so you can then see what are the components of, the, of what you're buying, what you're taking. The blindness is a real problem and I think when consumers are uneducated, they don't have a real chance. I know that in your book you also talk about being in the right environment. Um, so what are some best practices for somebody that wanted to indulge in, in one of these? Um, you talked about the right state, the right place, and the right awareness. I remembered your other question, mixing with alcohol. I, I personally don't find them that friendly together. I think they're doing different things. I'm not sure okay. why chemically. Um, other people may have different experiences. I don't know. But um, I think the idea that you use cannabis to go out and have a great wild time is, is sort of crazy, actually. It's, it's, it's a, to me, it's a, a, 
a thing that in, engenders intimacy and uh, can be very, obviously music tastes, sounds beautiful with it, more enhanced, um, uh, as does food. Cannabis seems to be a sensory enhancer, and I think it's worth cultivating that. I remember when I was writing the book, um, I was writing a book. It's a lonely experience, and it's torture sometimes. And I would reward myself at 4 o'clock when I was done working by taking just a few vapor hits and going for a bike ride. Mm -hmm. um, I, was, I was at the beach working. And I remember just biking and, and smelling the pine trees more, more vividly and feeling the wind on my skin differently, and then stopping after 20 or 30 miles, and then eating, and how good that food really tasted. Um, and it just helped me get a different frame on things. It, it didn't, it wasn't, it's not a cure, it's not a miracle, it's not any of that, mm -hmm. okay? It's a, it's a portal, I think, a rather small portal, through which you can view your life a little differently. Um, before, um before we open the floor for, for questions, I'm sure everyone has a ton for you. Um, there was some recent news in the press about some of the corporations like Philip Morris um, that are making some different movements towards um, the inroads towards uh, cannibalization. Um, I guess, um, let's talk about some stats we had. In 2014, Philip Morris spent millions of dollars lobbying against keeping marijuana illegal. And then in- 40 million, was it 80? I think it was 80, 80 million, yeah. um, not sourced. Um, and then in 2015, they actually were spending money to advocate being able to transport marijuana from one state to another. Um, how do you feel about you know, these companies kind of going around um, protocol to kind of get into the business before it's like widely, widely legal? Well, I feel badly about it. Um, however, we are in America and we are a capitalist society, so it's inevitable. Mm -hmm. um, I think what's interesting is uh, in California, for example, the Proposition the Ballot Initiative has a five-year window before corporations can begin. Mm -hmm. which, and they're doing that intentionally. They're doing that so private, small growers and makers can consolidate their markets first mm -hmm. before the big companies come and, and suck them up. But I eventually, I think it's going to end up like beer, frankly, which is you'll have your big Anheuser-Busch's, you'll have your big you name them, Coors. And then you're always going to have 20% of the market that is making that Allagash White or that IPA. And you're going to have 20% of the people who prefer those sun-grown organic strains mm -hmm. from Humboldt County or Mendocino County versus the more industrial produced, um, probably less expensive stuff in the world. So I think um, this is the way America works. This is the way America rolls. Um, I think the reason they all want federal legalization mm -hmm. is to enable a bigger market. I yeah. mean, it's ridiculous right now. You have to, if you're a maker and you're in Colorado, you have to have a plant in Colorado, a plant in California, a plant in Oregon. Mm -hmm. You cannot move across state lines. This is not the way things work in this country effectively. So. I think that's why they're making this big push. And so where do you think that's going to take the revenue or the money that's coming from those states? Do you think that's going to affect the overall revenue that weed is generating? 
What do you mean? Like in terms of if, if these big companies are going to come in and sell weed as if they sell like a pack of cigarettes, do you think that's going to impact the smaller businesses or what? What do you think that's Oh, I'm sure there'll be consolidation. I'm, I'm sure there'll be, this is the beginning of something and there's going to be all sorts of ramifications that we can predict based on the past and that we can't predict. Um, I can tell you this though, I mean, I, I will say I looked at um, some stats from other countries, and this is interesting health-wise. So Holland's had decriminalized cannabis for 40 years. Mm -hmm. Portugal's had all drugs uh, decriminalized since 2002. So what happens in terms of use is very interesting. Both cultures say there's a slight uptick in use among all demographics as soon as decriminalization happens. But it levels off. It levels off to a level that's equal, or in the case of Holland, teen use is the lowest in Holland of any other country in Europe. Wow. I okay. think it's just demystified it completely and they're not interested. Okay. They're doing other things. It's too common, it's too regular. It's just too common, exactly. But the other beautiful thing that's happened though in Portugal is that they couldn't afford imprisoning people. Okay. So they had to stop imprisoning drug offenders and drug users. And that's major in this country. We have a terrible situation of over 800,000 mm -hmm. people, mostly black men or men of color, in jail for possession. And it's, it's outmoded, it's inefficient, it, it, it ruins lives, mm -hmm. it doesn't treat lives. So if we could sort of stop that and move into a more treatment model, mm -hmm. I think our society would be a healthier society. Yeah, I can totally support that. Good. Definitely agree. So anybody who's in California or Massachusetts or Maine or wherever there's a ballot initiative has a choice to vote this election, and they should think about that. They may not all be ballot initiatives, but options. Um, and so on that note, what we'll do is we have two mics here. Um, if you guys have any questions for Joe, please go up to the mic and ask a question. Hey, thanks for the talk. It was Hi. super interesting. Thank you. Um, first, a comment. You mentioned people in California, um, you know, post-medical, talking about weed strains at cocktail parties and stuff. I grew up in California. It's kind of always been like that. Uh, and uh, secondly... A lot of what you might call like pro-marijuana press and articles and stuff talks about, like if you read it, it looks like weed is good for everything and bad for nothing. Does that seem realistic? No. Okay. No, it's, cool. it's highly unrealistic. Hmm. It's the product of prohibition, I think. I think in prohibition, you're always fighting against something and it's very hard to step back and look. And it was, that's why my, my very negative experience with weed in the beginning of this project was, I think, helpful. Because I had to reckon with the fact that it's not always good. <laughs> and, you know, look, I, I've met a lot of people who've been smoking way too much weed for way too many years in the doing of this book, and there's a disconnect. They're not, they're, they're rambling half the time. They're not, you know this, you've met people like this, I'm sure. Um, something's gone wrong in their lives. Now, I'm not sure it's weed was the cause of it, but these, or, or maybe they had a problem connecting emotionally in the beginning. I don't know. I know. You'll never know cause and effect. Has it been a benefit? I'm not sure. You know. And I think all of us know people who've just used too many substances, no matter what they are. It could be alcohol. It could be chocolate. I mean, you know, it, 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 people get addicted to things and dependent become dependent on things. Um, in ways that we don't quite understand or why why certain people do. So I think we have to be really, we have to recognize that. And I also think we have to understand the, the risks of this thing. We have to understand the real risks of it. Am I worried about it growing boobs? No. Should I be worried about that? No. 
Do I think it's going to cause psychosis in me? Certainly, I hope not. I don't see it happening, okay? Um, and yes, you're right. California has been doing this for a very long time. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you. Over here. Hey, uh, thank Hi. you for coming today. It was really interesting to listen to uh, what you had to say. Um, so the DEA and FDA, I think, recently decided not to uh, change the uh, status the scheduling, of marijuana. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it still uh, has the same sort of Schedule One substance status as cocaine and heroin. heroin. Yep, and heroin, yeah. Um, and no acknowledgement of benefit. Uh, but meanwhile, there's you know tons of people who are finding medical benefits from it. Uh, children who like take CBD and yeah. do not have seizures anymore. Um, so anyway, so I'm wondering, uh, you know, what is, in your opinion, sort of the the reason why it's so difficult for the government to acknowledge any medical benefit, and is there any parallel of like a past natural substance that was not considered to have a benefit, but people changed their mind? I'm not sure about the last part of that. I'm not. I'm not really sure at all. Um, about if there's a parallel substance, I'm not sure. I think mar I think cannabis is qu is quite unique. I think it's very sui ge generis, and there's not much like it out there. Um, why the government does this? Th this is a bafflement to everybody. I mean, even I think the day before Obama was sort of making moves to you know uh, make it easier to to get laws passed, and then the DEA comes down. Look, it's a job program for for drug enforcement. Let's face it. Okay. It's easy to bust plants in the ground, okay? What happens when their jobs go away? I don't know. Why the DEA has aegis over a health product or a potential health product is, again, a question that is, it was an act of Congress in the 1960s that enabled that to happen. And this is an instance where our laws are so ineffective, so outmoded, and it doesn't, the president can't undo that. It's an act of Congress. And look at our Congress today. Are they functional enough to do anything, let alone something relatively minor like this? You know, I'm not saying, believe me, I don't think cannabis is the number one issue facing the world, okay? So I, I rate it actually quite low on all the things the Congress should be doing, but it's, this is a, a no-brainer. Let research happen. Let science happen. We live in a culture that's based on science and data. What are we, what are we doing? And if, if, if there's a plant that can produce healing compounds that is less expensive, less addictive, less detrimental to society, you can grow, you know, in California, if they pass Proposition 64, every household could grow six plants. You can grow your own medicine and then figure out how you want to use it. I, to me, it makes no sense at all, but ever since I started this project, a lot of the history of cannabis makes no sense at all. Sorry. Thanks. <laughs> um, we can go over that. Oh, hi. Oh, sure. Uh, kind of going off of that question, um, do you think big tobacco and big alcohol are going to play, like, uh, are they going to be an impediment to cannabis legalization federally, or how do you think they will? I think they might have been at a certain point. I think they are, if they're aware of it. I have friends who work for tobacco companies and say, they're not even thinking about this until some moves are made on a federal level because the market is just too balkanized. It's not big enough for them to really have an impact. But once that happens, what do you think? I mean, is there any way they're not going to be going there? There will be moral marijuana at a certain point, okay? <laughs> I like that. I think there will. It's going to be inevitable, okay? 
It just seems, yes. And then it's going to be, how do we tell the good from the bad? And then where's the fact in the fiction, right? Like, what is it really used for and what is it not used for? Because what I, my guess is that it's going to be more of a nutraceutical than a pharmaceutical. Because nutraceuticals have much less red tape to, to push through. And the barrier to entry is much easier. That's my guess. Thank you. Uh, well, that was sort of my question. I just wanted to really talk, get your thoughts on because I think it's actually really unfair, legalization, and I'm all for it, but I've spoken to many people who agree, who think that legalization poses a lot of problems and it's actually quite unfair because a lot of these people who have been making strides in this community are, as you said, punished for it, and all, not, only, not only punished, but are serving jail time and really serving unfair, fel doing felonies and all these things and, and a majority black and brown community and it's really affected the black and brown community. Absolutely. So my, I, my thing is that when it becomes legalized, these people who are using it as a livelihood and a way to kind of make a living are gonna just be pushed aside for these big companies and maybe even make a bigger um, separation because a lot of these people who are benefiting off the legalization are mostly white and with a lot of money. So I think there's a disparity there that's a problem and the people who have been fighting for marijuana and really using it for a while and kind of brought it to this point are just going to be forgotten about and just pushed to the side. Let me say two things to you. Um, I don't disagree with what your mm -hmm. point is. However, I think legalization makes everybody smarter. Yeah, I mean, of course. Okay. So, so on that level, the society, the education level just goes up a lot. So in that way, I am all for legalization. California's doing an interesting thing. They're basically giving amnesty to anybody who's been arrested. If, if the if ballot initiative passed, okay? There's restitution and amnesty. So part of the tax benefit goes to financial restitution for people whose property has been seized. That's quite interesting. And then if you have been arrested or had a crime for working in the industry when it was illegal, that crime is erased. I'm not sure it's quite, I'm not sure erased is the word, but it's somehow mitigated, okay? Um, so that's a very fair and sensible approach to the problem you're raising. As for people who've been making a living off the illegality of it, I mean, you gotta get a job yeah. in the legal world. Mm -hmm. That's the way life goes. Yeah. And I think that should be doable. Yeah. That's what I think. Yeah. I thank you. Thank you. So we can take one more question. Hi. Uh, Hi. Do you think uh, when you know Philip Morris starts producing uh, joints, uh, they'll be incentivized to put additional addictive chemicals in it the way they are with cigarettes, or do you think that would in work against you know selling more? more well, the problem is, what would you? How would that addiction happen? Cannabis, as I explained to you, works on these receptors. Um, it doesn't seem to be something that we have a physical addiction to. So I don't think they're going to, I mean, I, I, maybe they'll work very hard to find out something like that. Um, and again, I think an educated populace will resist that. You know, the one thing about cannabis users are they're quite, they really know what they like. And they're, they're quite sort of demanding. Um, and it's not only the upper tier Wall Street finance guys. I have met, you know, people, growers from all different strata, and they can, they can tell you the smell of certain things they like. They can tell you how they like to use it. Um, so I, I, I would hope, let me say I hope not, okay? I, nefarious methods that larger, small companies use, I, I can't really adjudicate on. 
Thank you. Sure. Thank you. Um, so we have a few minutes left. I'm going to just ask you a, a final question uh, to wrap this up before you guys can all get your books. Um, so say, hypothetically, if I'm a pretty open-minded person and I've had a tiring day at work and I go home and, I'm, and I want to uh, have a strain of something, like what, it, what would you recommend for, for someone like that? <laughs> so, <laughs> that's so cute. <laughs> so there's something like 13,000 strains of cannabis in the world, all of which vary depending on microclimate and soil conditions and then your endocannabinoid system. So the, the, either the good or the bad news is you've got to find that out for yourself, uh, okay? You can't provide some guidance or criteria or parameters around that. I really can't. No, I have found that we all have such different, app, different tastes for, you know, the smell molecules in cannabis are very interesting. We ha it has these pharmaceutical-grade things called terpenes. Uh -huh. And some of the common ones you'll know because they're, pinene, which is pine, or linalool, which is lavender, mm -hmm. or um, myrcene, which is, I think it's like a sort of a fruity blueberry thing. And then there's um, beta-caryophylline, that's a tongue twister, but it's the back, the back note of black pepper or clove. Okay. And what people say is that your nose will guide you to the strain that you have an affinity for because your body is at one. You know, in the same way that our brains produce a chemical that, are, that is bioidentical to the mm -hmm. plant, right? That there's some sort of physiological, biological connection between what you like and what's gonna suit you. I found it to be sort of true. Okay. So you're gonna have to do a lot of sniffing. Yeah, I guess I have a lot of homework ahead of me. Um, but thank, thank you so much. This book is great. I highly recommend it. You've taught me a lot. Um, this talk is very inspiring. So thank you, Joe, thank for Thank you here for here. having me. Thank you. Thank you thank so you. much for having me. Thanks for listening. If you have any feedback about this or any other episode, we'd love to hear from you. You can visit g.co slash talks at Google slash podcast feedback to leave your comments. To discover more thought-provoking content, you can always find us online at youtube.com slash talks at Google, on our website, google.com slash talks, or via our Twitter handle, at talks at Google. Talk soon!